0: So I want to welcome everyone to our second session on self and non-self. Last week, we talked about the Buddha's teachings on the self, the conventional self, and how to use that for practice, use that for the foundation of our development on the path, and also to care for ourselves, to to love ourselves ourselves, that this is a very important part of the encouragement that we need and the, the uh, foundation that we need for our development. And the Buddha talked about it quite a lot. But of course, now now today we're going to turn to non-self. And I imagine many of you have read the, the study guide materials. But regardless of that, uh, we'll uh, Put our heads together and see how we can dig deeply into this teaching of the buddhas and not for a, the idea of an intellectual inquiry in fact most of my teachers um, are pretty straightforward when someone asks a question and when i've asked questions <laughs> that are more theoretical and You know, more about kind of picking apart the the nitty gritty and they say, so what? You know, that doesn't matter for your awakening. That the focus needs to be on the practice and your development, our development. So we'll try to really dig into that. How to make this idea of non-self clear and then how to use it. And
1: it really is an essential realization for our attainments. So I wanna talk a little bit about
0: the um, the materials, just point out what I think is really essential in them. And after I give a Dhamma reflection, then we'll have the same kind of format as last time a few minutes for clarifying questions, and then a guided meditation, and an opportunity to meet together in small groups, and then coming back together in large groups for more questions and discussion. So, I want to talk a little bit about, um, as I said, the key points that I think are in the suttas that show up in the study guide, and maybe uh, some others around that, that the Buddha in the Anatalakana Sutta, the very first sutta in, in the readings, and the second discourse that he gave after his enlightenment, at least that's according to our records that, were, that are in the Pali canon.
1: And the first point that he makes is that if the body was a self, if that could be called self, then it wouldn't lead to affliction. And we would be able
0: to say, I want that body to be like this, or I want it to not be like that. And it would happen. And I think this is a hard one to really understand. What was the Buddha meaning by this? And I think it gives us a little bit of a glimpse into what the concept of a supramundane self is that it's something that lasts forever and ever. If it's really mine, if it's really me, then I can control it. Uh, then it is the way I want it to be. And it's like that forever and ever. And I think that in a lot of, I think for many people, that is their hope, that after we die in this life, that whatever goes on lasts forever and ever and doesn't change. And basically, the Buddha is showing us in his many ways and teaching that that is not a discoverable, observable reality. I'm going to get to more on that, and more about that, in a minute. So the Buddha is talking about a self that, if if there were
1: um, a self, that it would be um, based
0: only upon itself. It would exist without any other conditions being necessary. Now, I want to be clear to say that the Buddha never said there's no self, because that would be confusing. And it would reach beyond the observable reality, even for the Buddha and his very advanced disciples, who could really penetrate what lies way beyond material existence but instead he talks about all of the things that couldn't possibly be a self because he could see that directly so it's really interesting that the buddha himself he never overreaches what can actually be seen through our observation especially with deep meditation going beyond the the intellect into what he talked about as direct experience of the Dhamma, of the truth of the way things are. And so when he when he talks about um, other things as well, like when he he had there are a number of suttas on something called There's No Discoverable Beginning. And he talks about how um, there have been countless lifetimes that we've had in the past and that you can't discover a beginning he couldn't there he could look back for eons and there's no discoverable beginning and so he doesn't say there's no beginning but even with his incredible abilities the development of his mind being so vast it can't be discovered so where our task today isn't nearly that hard Although I will continue to encourage all of us
1: to deepen our meditation practice to the degree that we are able to
0: have direct experience of these truths. And it comes naturally.
1: It arises out of uh, the stillness of the mind. It's not a goal, but it is. An inevitable development of our practice. So, in this sutta, the
0: Buddha, you know, the classic kind of example of the Buddha going through this list of questions about the five aggregates, about material form or the body. I mean, that. It's. It, I don't mean to equate all material form with the body, but the body's our most immediate um, example of material form, and often the Buddha talks about the body as that first aggregate, but it includes everything else, material form, and then of course our feelings, perception, mental thought, mental or thought formations. And consciousness. And usually, what's referred to here is sense consciousness. And he talks about the impermanence um, that anything that's impermanent is in subject to change is going to cause suffering if we cling to it, and that that can't possibly be self. So. And of course, he's pointing out that all, so much of our suffering comes from taking something as self when actually it's not self and it changes and we don't want it to change or it
1: stays the same and we don't want it to stay the same. So the Buddha,
0: I like this, this particular segment where he says, so you should truly see any kind of form at all past, future, or present, internal or external, coarse or fine, inferior or superior, far or near, all form with
1: right understanding. This is not mine. I am not this. This is not myself. And then he talks about all of the other four aggregates
0: as well in the same way, covering kind of, all the ground there. And then he says, seeing this, a learned noble disciple grows disillusioned with form, feeling, perception, mental formations and
1: consciousness. And being disillusioned, desire fades away. And when desire fades away, they're freed. And when they're freed, they know they're freed. And I I find that beautiful and inspiring and directly experienceable with
0: examples that we can find in our daily life and
1: ultimately with everything, that freedom, which is the realization of Nirvana. So I want to make a couple of points of the... Um, importance of
0: the simile of the snake sutta which if you read the original the the complete version you'll know that it's got quite a lot in it (laughs) and the part that is really focused on non-self and in the first section he talks about the standpoint for views the ordinary person regards form feeling perception and mental activity Whatever is seen, heard, thought, known, sought, and explored by the mind, like this, this is mine, I am this, this is myself. The self and the cosmos are one and the same. This is the piece he adds here in the simile of this thing. And after death, I will be permanent, everlasting, eternal, imperishable, and will last
1: forever and ever. They also regard this is. They regard this idea, this
0: this reality as mine. I am this, this is myself. But the noble disciple does not regard these things in this way.
1: And they are not anxious about what happens with regard to this, uh, that doesn't really last forever. So then he starts talking about what we get
0: anxious about anxious about things that don't exist internally or externally. And how the noble disciple doesn't get anxious about those things because they know they don't exist internally or externally. Things like what I may have had and I didn't, uh, what I had and I no longer have, or what I might get and don't get. That these are the kinds of things that are you know, we we think we deserve or we think are mine or should be mine or were mine and we don't, without the penetration or the the investigation of whether that really was mine in the first place, um,
1: we can really suffer. So the Buddha is pointing that out. Now I want to Say that when he talks about an untaught ordinary person or a
0: noble disciple, that he uses that comparison a lot in the suttas. And it's really kind of inspiring, I think, and encouraging to look at the behavior and the views of a noble disciple because we all are that. And we, the more we, pick up those behaviors and views the more we become that that's available to all of us being untaught and ordinary just means we haven't looked at these things in this way and of course the buddha is not saying just pick this up because i say this is what a noble disciple does it's about our investigation of of these ideas and these realities and then through our own direct experience of the truth of it the ennobling happens and the descriptions of the way a noble disciple responds to things are really quite inspiring and then as we see that develop in ourselves and in one another it's
1: really inspiring So there's a passage in this sutta
0: where he he would he says it would make sense to be possessive of something that is impermanent, everlasting, eternal, imperishable, and will last forever and ever. It would be it would be it would make sense to want to have that and to hold
1: on to it. But he asks the 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 people there, the practitioners, do you, do you see any such thing? And they say, no. And he said, I don't either. Now, this is where
0: deep investigation is helpful. And this, this can come, first of all, we, we look at what we can see um, when we're not meditating about the body and our feelings and so on. We notice that it changes all the time and it's really processes. But then in deep meditation, it goes further and it's, it's not through an intellectual exercise, it's through letting go.
1: Holding the question in the mind, can I find anything? That's permanent,
0: lasting, forever and ever, unchanging. And there there comes a time when the mind goes out with that question and finds that there is no such thing.
1: So this is something that's observed directly through experience. And then he talks the same way about a doctrine of self. And he says the same thing about of any view. And then he talks about what is self and what belongs to self. And he says, but self and what belongs to self are not acknowledged as a genuine
0: fact. So that's through, we can't find it. We can't find something that we could say is self or belongs to self. That being so, isn't it completely foolish to have such a view as the self and the cosmos are one and the same and after death, they will be permanent, everlasting, eternal, imperishable, and will last forever and ever.
1: So this is something worth contemplating and, seeing if that settles into the mind in a way that we can understand it. And I expect there'll be questions, but before we get to them, I wanna share another sutta just briefly.
0: There was a time when Venerable Sariputta, who is you may know, as one of the Buddha's chief disciples, and Venerable Mahakotita, who was another Arahant disciple of the Buddha, were together talking. And Mahakotita asks Venerable Sariputta, "So, see how does he put it? What should a virtuous person properly attend to?" So he bases this all first of all on virtue, which brings us back to what we talked about last week the the uh, requirement that we use our our conventional self to establish virtue and um, use our strength and um, take care of ourselves. And then he says, so with that ethics with the virtue established, what should you pay attention to? And Venerable Sariputta um, says an ethical person should properly attend to the five aggregates um, subject to clinging as impermanent, unsatisfactory, disease, cancer, stabbing, misfortune, affliction, alien, disintegrating, empty, and as not self. So that can seem a little harsh, <laughs> and it's good to really have this idea of loving and taking care of one's body and mind in place as the um, container for that kind of inquiry. And that what, it, what does it mean there that we recognize what the body really is? and what feelings and perceptions and so on, what that really is, so that we're not identifying with it, clinging to it in vain, uh, Only with, that only leads to, to more suffering. And so he says that if an ethical practitioner does reflect in this way, it's quite possible that they'll realize stream entry. And then Venerable Mahakotita asks, So, what should a stream enterer pay attention to? And Venerable Sariputta goes through the exact same thing. They should also pay attention to um, the five aggregates of clinging in this way. And then, and then when they do, they, it's possible that they become a once returner. And then they go through the same process about a once returner, and it's possible to become a non-returner. And then he says, well, what should a non-returner pay attention to? Oh, the five aggregates in the same way. And then it's possible they become an arahant. Well, what should an arahant pay attention to? This is the part I really think is fun. Now, you may not have fun in the same way as I do with this, but I hope you will. <laughs> um, That an arahant should also pay wise attention to the aggregates of attachment or clinging as impermanent, unsatisfactory, disease, cancer, stabbing, misfortune, affliction, really, and disintegrating, empty,
1: and not so. And it's not that they have anything more to discover or
0: develop, but when they do, then they um, cultivate and, um, they
1: have a, they have a pleasant life here and now and mindfulness and clear awareness are present. So I'm curious if you have any
0: questions at this point, and if you do, we'll try to keep them concise but if you would like to write them in the chat, Sarah will um, present them and we'll
1: we'll take some time with this, so a few minutes. You can raise your hand with the hand raise function. So we know
0: you're there and you can write into the chat. Yes, Phil?
2: Thanks very much. I I totally understand how the conventional self is conditioned and is not permanent, pure, or perfect. I I wondered if you could explain to me if one becomes enlightened Mm -hmm. or the Buddha, is there an unconditioned, permanent, pure, perfect self in that circumstance?
0: The Buddha says that's not a self either. He said there's there's no self in any conditioned things. And or he says that all conditioned things are impermanent and there's no self in any conditioned or unconditioned things. So what Arahants still alive today say about this is that The reality goes beyond self and non-self. So self implies there's this me, an identity of me, and that falls away.
1: Uh,
2: But if we can, that's great. But just to to ask that a little bit more, if we don't call it a self, uh, is the Buddha permanent, pure, and perfect?
0: Permanent, pure, and perfect. Um, I, the realization of nibbana brings all of what would be called, even the Buddha, to coolness. It just goes still. We have to think of all these things as processes, and there's no peace as long as those processes are still running. So we don't think of the Buddha as in Nibbana. It's gone to stillness. And Arahant has no more clinging, no more drive, no more um, craving. It's, it's, it just comes to a close. The Buddha talked about the flame going out, as you probably know. And there's no direction that it goes so it completely transcends this idea of some being permanent. Mm.
2: Thank you, I appreciate You're that.
0: Welcome. Okay, I'm going to take a question from Sarah, and then we'll come back to the hands raised. So
3: this is a quick question from someone in the chat. What was the Sutta you just quoted from Sariputta and, and? Oh yes.
0: I will give that to you. That is in the Sanyuta Nikaya 22-122. So in the uh, Book of the Aggregates, 122. And it's one of Ajahn favorites,
1: <laughs> in case you want to know, in case anyone cares. <laughs> okay, Jerry. Um, Thank you. And um,
4: I promise I won't say the same thing every week, but uh, I am going to repeat myself because I find some of this reading makes the situation worse for me.
5: Um. Not
4: it doesn't uh, move me forward on the path. It just gets me frustrated. Uh, So, but as I said last week, you may not remember is that I had had a recent class through um, uh, the same center. And the teacher suggested that the self, as the Buddha talked about it, was the self as defined in that culture in India. Mm
6: -hmm.
4: And you may, I'm probably wrong, but you seem to have dismissed that. But now, this reading, which I found, I found the reading very fascinating. Uh, The simile of the snake is really a great sutta on on all the different elements. But this definition, uh, if I can find it now. Um, I'm probably not, you read it already, that it's the self and the, uh, the self is the world after death, I shall be permanent. These are not ever my thoughts on the self when I used to believe there was a self. You know, I, I still, am, I'm unsure of how to define it, but I never defined it according to it being everlasting and never dying. It's not, okay. it's not part of my definition. So- if this is the self of Buddhism, then yeah, I'm with it. Yeah. I'm I, Because I never believed in that anyways. So that's one, mm-hmm. you know, that, that do you was, believe
0: in a self that gets annihilated? That uh, ends
4: in, in the Dharma and I believe in nature and that I do believe mostly even Western psychology would say that much of the self is, is a cognitive, uh, is a cognitive creation picked up by how other people react to us.
1: Mm-hmm. So,
4: that to that extent no and through my practice i believe now that the self is a process i believe that anyways Mm -hmm. the other thing that bothers me is if we've evolved over hundreds of thousands of years i'm not i i'm a clinger i admit it and i'm working on it i however the impermanence is not inherently suffering i don't think so have you ever gone on a vacation to an island and everybody usually having a drink and everyone goes to watch the sunset so well we all know the sunset is a process and i don't you know in other words processes of impermanence is beautiful but it's
0: all about the clinging if if we you know look at the sunset and it's beautiful and there's absolutely no clinging no identification it's no problem that's why it's the way we look at things and the way we you know, the way we miss some of the truth of reality that causes the problem. And I want to just say in your reading, when you read the suttas, don't take any piece as the whole definition. You have to look at many different things that the Buddha says. And so he's talking there to the people who do think this and we have there's a lot of that now. That's in the major religions all over the place. So it's not just about the time of the Buddha and what people thought. So just just see what what fits your situation and what you know so far, and what is still mysterious or still is not understood. Like if we're still clinging, if we're still suffering, we still have work to do. So focus on that and don't worry too much about whether. You know, the Buddha talks about something that doesn't fit your situation. He talked about things, the Dhamma was always the same, but he talked about them in different ways for the many different people who showed up in front of him.
4: Right, I hear you. I I, yeah. I find, and you would know this better than me, but how many of our contemporaries in the Sangha, including me to a certain extent, more so a couple, maybe five years ago, suffer over this issue and they mm-hmm. get... Over this issue, and I wish there was a way to teach it to free them, so that they can move, move and start. And no.
1: as they have a- to
0: stop becoming, relating to their views. It's like we we hold on to the views, and we be, we become, and we suffer. And that's exactly what happens.
3: I have to move on. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, Sarah. Um, Yeah, so another question from the chat. At the end of the simile of the snake, they refer to this term free of patchwork. Can you say more about what this refers to?
0: Yeah, this is um, a a description of someone who's um, heard the Buddhist teachings and sees that they're consistent. It's not like ideas cobbled together intellectually. It's through observation of the whole system of the way things work. And so it's free of patchwork in that way. It doesn't have just kind of like, oh, there's this and then there's that. Once you start to take in
1: the whole of the teaching, you really see it's seamless. Thank you. Cynthia? I, I uh, thank you.
7: Um, let me see if I can say what I need to say. So, I'm I'm trying to bring this down to you. Talked about how to make this useful and in, in our lives, and and I have no argument with anything in the suttas I mean, I get I under I understand that things are impermanent, blah, blah. and yet, like I've experienced a lot of, of loss in my life in the last, in the last few years, and mm-hmm. And it's hard, and and is that is that just so? I'm trying to figure out how to apply that. I mean, is that is that deep sense of loss and grief? Does that is that just because I really wasn't understanding it that these things that I lost never really belonged to me in the first place? You know, it's like the shock of it or something like that. And and how and does it just a matter of continuing to practice till that understanding becomes more uh natural and solid i mean is that is that
0: yes cynthia i think you've got it and it's really um it's really through realization through through insight uh that that other shoe drops. Okay. So we can, we we do everything we can to take it in intellectually, reflect on it over and over and over again with everything that comes across our, our path. And then, and then, you know, like when we are worrying about someone, we know that we're clinging, we know we're identifying, how can we step back and feel the cessation of that suffering to some degree And then we just keep doing that process, but we also keep meditating and letting the mind go still. Mm. And when we do, then there's, because of all that groundwork, there comes a time when the realization of it hits and that's where it goes in deep. Mm. And then, yeah, we don't get taken by surprise so much anymore. And there are levels to it, but that's how it works. Some some amount of insight and realization will
1: solidify
0: it. Mm-hmm. Actually, it'll transform the way the
3: way we see things. Thank you. Yeah. Sarah? Um, so one person is asking about the role of disgust. Um, so when when I read this, so there's an assumption that if we contemplate this we will feel disgust and that it's even necessary to cultivate some disgust, perhaps in order to free ourselves of clinging to the self. Um, so, uh, yeah, like what is, what is the role of disgust in the process of awakening?
6: Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah, so disgust is... Um is sometimes a wholesome thing to have, especially if we're disgusted by unwholesome behavior, um, our own or anyone else's. Disgust is also one of the ways of translating um, poly that you could use other words for. You could use um, disillusionment or, or um, you know, let's see, it's it's like there's there's nibbida which is disen, dis, um, being disenchanted or disillusioned and then the viraga is maybe the disgust and and it can be um, translated in another in other ways
1: where it's not quite so negative where you really have dispassion so.
0: It's like the passion goes away. The the desire for it goes away. Um, Sometimes we think of disgust as having an emotional component that is really aversive. And that's not what the intention is there. It's more like, yeah, sometimes I say it's like the kind of disgust you have for rotten food. You know, you open the lid on something, it's all moldy, and there's a disgust. But it's not like you're clinging to it. There's no attachment. It just passes. You just see that it's unwholesome,
1: and so it's that kind of that kind of feeling. Okay, I think. Um, how many more questions do you have, there, Sarah? Um, let me see. There are
3: um, two more in the chat.
0: Okay,
1: let's see if we can take these four questions really quickly. And then um, so June, go ahead. So the Pali word, the Pali word upadana,
7: my understanding of it is it means both clinging and selfing. um, And that clinging is in fact selfing? And do I have that understanding correct? And could you just talk a little bit about clinging, selfing, becoming?
0: Yeah, are they all they're all being- they so closely related. I'd have to go look up Upadana to see if there's a, a sub meaning around selfing, because I usually think of it as clinging. And yes, clinging is so close to what are we clinging to? something that we think is near mine i mean it's just so obvious and then the becoming becoming is is what's happening at the time it seems to me like these are just kind of different facets of the same the same process and that we, what we really want to get to is like how do i feel this how does it show up in my experience and how do i let it go mm-hmm. i have i have seen it of
7: late little glimpses of it Informal meditation, I could you know see it
0: That's happening.
7: Great.
0: It's happening. That's I can see it coming. I'm moving on.
3: Thank you, yeah. <laughs> Sarah. Okay, so um, Andrew Lansky writes in short that it's not the self. It's not that the self craves, but the craving is what creates the sense of self. Um, any sort of reflections or nuances on on that.
0: Yeah, some of some of these things I, I think we should look at whether or not it matters uh, to know like what comes first or how it comes about. It's only important if that provides you a way to let it go. And maybe we just let go
1: of the whole the whole thing. Amanda.
8: Um In my contemplation of this recently, I've had um, some experiences of depression come back for me Mm -hmm. that hadn't been around for a long time. So Mm -hmm. it feels like this very extreme version, very heavy, extreme version of self coming in, um, wanting to squash down. Yeah, And what you're saying, like I've got tears now because what you're saying and what my teachers have been saying to me is just be be with this and this thing you're saying about disgust, like the, so when you can see if I could just really be with there's no need for this anymore, but the experience is that I cling on to this thing.
3: Mm-hmm.
8: I cling on to this thing that causes such pain, and it's very confusing. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I should no. cling. To something yeah, so Amanda. The pr- approach that I would take is to bring in more of the love, more of the loving kindness, more of the reflection on the good that you're doing and. So we need to keep a balance in the mind. And we actually need to keep the mind pretty happy. And it's fundamental. And so when it starts to turn dark, that's not the Buddha's intention. He wants us to feel that joy, that loving kindness, really use the Brahma Viharas a lot. Um, you know, talk to people if that's helpful about what you're experiencing. And I'm not talking about shoving our experience under the rug because we do need to be present with what we feel and, um, and, and work with it in a way that we can let go. But I think really, really noticing the need for that balance and do what you can to lift up the mind. And then just very gently remind your mind when it's suffering and clinging to something that it's okay to let
1: go, and you know take it gently. Does that help? Yeah. Okay.
0: You're welcome. I think there's one more question um,
3: from the chat. I I I miscounted it. Yeah, all set. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you all for
0: your questions.
3: So
1: we're going to have some meditation now. So find a comfortable position. We want the spine to be straight, and
0: traditionally we would be sitting in a chair or on the floor, but it's also okay if that's not comfortable to lie down or to stand. And the main thing about the posture is that you don't have to work hard to hold yourself still or hold yourself um, straight. So if you're lying down or standing, bending the knees is good so that
1: the spine can flatten. And put your attention on your breathing if that's a comfortable object for you. If not, use what really helps you to relax and be comfortable. Breathing in, aware that you are breathing in and breathing out, aware that you're breathing out. And establishing in that awareness of your breath, establishing mindfulness. But at the same time, we wanna also establish loving kindness and wisdom. We want wisdom, whether we think of it as the Pali word Panya or the Pali Sampajanya, clear comprehension.
0: We want to use that wisdom to know what's actually helpful for the mind and what isn't. We also want to use loving kindness to really help us come to our meditation with balance, with a, with a mental attitude that makes it easier to feel joy
1: and contentment and stillness. So we pay attention to our in-breath and our out-breath. And we can also expand our view to the whole body. And with a sense of appreciation of this body, we are going to bring attention to particular systems within it, and we can start with the parts that we see, the skin, the hair, the nails And this is a system, system of protection, of cleansing. Sweat is included in this system. Some of you might be experiencing that more lately than you're used to.
0: And this is one of the many indications that the conditions of this system
1: continually change. And we can just appreciate and observe that this system of this outer layer continually changes. And even though we identify with the way it looks quite strongly, we can know that it's suffering to want it to stay the same or to want it to be different than it is Then let's bring our attention to the circulatory system, the heart, all the blood vessels. This system, like all others, has gone through tremendous change in the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Can we accept the way it is right now and the knowledge that it will continue to change? And there will come a time when it will stop. This heart will stop beating. The blood will stop circulating. And if we're clear about this Body as a process. We won't suffer for that. We can turn our attention to our nervous system and all the good that it does for us. and explore its impermanence. The dukkha that comes if we want it to remain the same, if we identify with him. We can notice the digestive system starting at the mouth, going down, throat, stomach, intestines. Elimination of waste. It has its good days, it has its bad days. It has its good decades and its bad decades. And then there's the muscular system. Where we can notice aches and pains moving, changing, very different from what it was 10 years ago, perhaps, or two years ago. the skeletal system, the growing of bone, the decreasing of bone, the breaking of bone, the mending of bone. Natural processes dependent on many other factors to keep going. And all the other systems of the body, intricate, reproductive, elimination, urinary. All processes operating. Where in any of it could we find a self? Something that can exist from its own side. And if we go to the mental factors like feeling with its constant changing, isn't that also a process dependent upon any other conditions? Now, if this becomes too much like a thought
0: process, we can become more calm and still by
1: bringing our attention back to our breathing. So that this too is an activity of calling forth insight creating the causes and the conditions for our deepening understanding of the way things actually are. the process of perception. Perceptions of others, perceptions of self, perceptions of the physical world, process. When we want to cling to a view, to an idea, we suffer. Mental constructs, formations, thoughts. Those things we choose to ponder. Changing processes, certainly. Worthy of being called mine. Somehow constituting a self or part of self. We can appreciate the activity of the mind. We can be grateful for it. Feed the process good material. And see good material come forward. But without clinging, then there's no suffering. Without self identification, no dukkha. Not over the past, the present, or the future. So a gentle reminder, this is not me, I'm not this, this is not myself. In consciousness, sense consciousness arising and ceasing, or consciousness that moves from life to life, still goes quiet with full understanding. It's a process. see what you can do to let go of thinking and settle into stillness until the sound of the bell See what you can do to bring more happiness into your meditation. Letting go in a way that supports joy arising. Okay, so we're gonna break into small groups
0: and take a tiny bio break uh, in the transition, if you like. The question that we're going to reflect on,
1: um, it will be in the chat. And it's basically, what is
0: your experience so far? of suffering arising when
1: we take something as me or mine, especially uh, something that's subject to change, which
0: is basically everything except nibbana. So that would do it. And, And then what is your experience when you let go of that perception of me or mine? What does that feel like? So the question is there, a little bit more concise than what I just gave. So you're going to be in a group of four. Um, We'll split into groups of four or maybe five, I guess, if the numbers don't work out quite evenly for four. And um, I encourage you to participate. If you really would rather not, you can come back to the main room and meditate will be taking 20 minutes. Um, please keep confidentiality of whatever is said in your group and um, try not to give each other advice or um, crosstalk and be aware of the time so everybody gets a chance to share. You know, you know the shtick. <laughs> Being kind and
1: considerate of each other. Okay. I'll see you all back here in about 20 minutes or so. So now we have some time for Q&A. And I want you to
0: know that it's fine if you want to let us know if you would like for whatever you say, your question to not be recorded, or not included in the recording.
1: Don't feel the least bit self-conscious about that. We can edit it out. Yes, Emily.
3: you Aya I'll put it succinctly um could you explain the relationship between compassion and dispassion Hmm. well I
0: think there is a bit of a relationship in that when we have dispassion we have more compassion um because we're not attached um we're not the self isn't involved and it seems counterintuitive actually but i find that when the more that the self um dissolves or more the more that our our clinging and passion dissolve and we have dispassion for um, those things which will fall apart the more what's left is is love. And compassion is a very natural outgrowth of love. Uh, that, That the love is much more, well,
1: it's unconditional. So it increases. Compassion increases. Sarah, are there any questions in the chat as yet? Not yet, no. Okay, feel free to put them in the
0: chat if you like. Holly?
6: It came up in the small group, an analogy for me that it feels like as uh, my aspects of selfing um, dissipate, I feel kind of like a boat whose moorings have been cut off And it's kind of nice. But I wonder if uh, you could speak to that phase or that time. It feels like I'm just sort of like letting myself just kind of float on the sea of experience without having a direction. It it leaves me free for the Brahma Viharas, for example. Uh, Anyway, I wonder if you could, if anything arises, other analogies that are like that, perhaps, Mm -hmm. that would be really nice. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I don't know if I have analogies but I I think it's really important to recognize that as we let go
1: of clinging to all things in the in the world
0: we need to strengthen our reliance on the dhamma and the buddha and the and the enlightened sangha. So if we feel adrift and and it's pleasant and freeing, that's one thing. But if we feel adrift as if we don't have um, grounding or support, then come back to really focusing on Dhamma and really focusing on on um, the, the refuge the true refuges. And you know, as we're traveling, um, to the to the final result of the path. And we're constantly trading up. And if it feels like we're letting go of something and somehow it's diminishing, then we need to turn our attention to that which gives us greater support and uh, stability and and the Bra- and the Brahma Vihara's love.
6: I think that is it what you feel doing. like trading up.
0: Yeah.
6: Yeah. It feels like that's a good analogy. Trading up. Yeah.
0: That's what renunciation is. It's a process of trading up, continual
1: trading up, and you can really feel it when you feel joy and letting go of things. Jesse.
2: Thank you, Aya. Thanks for indulging me in another question uh, from last time. But and I, I wrote in the chat the question, the, the quote from Andrew Olensky. If I could just elaborate slightly, it's not just an academic question. But when I first came to the Dhamma, I uh, learned about non-self, and I found myself trying to prove non-self. You know, look for my non-self, uh, especially in the five aggregates, and you know, examining them and say, oh, well, look at that, and but but that's not myself. And I found it was kind of a rabbit hole and I've heard of other people having similar experiences. So what, and Olensky and I, he's not the only one, but kind of just saying, well, it's craving and clinging that create a sense of self led me to say, well, if I just focus on that and reducing craving and clinging and aversion, then, you know, over time, maybe I'll lose interest in whether I have a self or not that will become kind of beside the point.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and, and I, I was wondering if you, um, you know, have any, have any thoughts on, on that? Um, You know, that there's a risk in, 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 in doctrine of non-self and kind of getting lost in the philosophy and trying to prove a negative.
0: Hmm. I think what I'm hearing is that it's made too much into an intellectual process and not enough into an experiential process. So if we're seeking some answer that then we can solidify as our view. Um, That's not really the the process that we wanna use because it's another side of self, selfing, becoming. And so it's, it's like that examination of it's, uh, first of all, it's not, a, it's not so much an intellectual inquiry as it is a contemplative inquiry. It's important to really know the difference. And so one can really reflect on everything that comes along and really look at it and see its nature without going down a rabbit hole. It's, it's, it's when we get caught up in thinking that I think we get um, confused and it does, it leads to a, a lot of confuse, confusion and doubt. Whereas, so it's, it's not at all about proving there's a not self. It's about looking at reality and seeing that this can't be a self. And then when that deepens, when that really hits with realization, there's a lot of joy. And you don't forget. You don't forget when it happened. You don't forget where you were when it happened. And you can't go back to not knowing it. And that's way different from an intellectual inquiry.
3: Sarah. Oh one question from the chat. Could you outline some concrete practices for working with the ingrained conviction that uh, something is me or mine? Um, mm-hmm. For example, narrativizing that a negative experience will last forever.
1: Narrativizing that a negative experience will last forever? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. yeah I think.
0: I think the practice that I would, I mean the, the practice that I would recommend is, like, first of all, really strengthening your mindfulness. Um, that you're really observing. So mindfulness isn't just about being aware of what's happening; it's also about re- really being a little bit distant from what's happening. You know, you're, you're watching it. You're watching this mental state. You're observing this mental state. You're not in this mental state. Whatever this negative experience is, you're stepping back from it. It doesn't fill the whole screen of your awareness. There's space around it. And when we're staying, then then we can be present with all the feeling that arises around it. We can be present with the thoughts that rise around it. And there needs to be different kind of tools employed. Like if we're feeling strong feelings, then it's good to be present with those feelings as they present in the body and observe them as they as they become less. Those thought patterns in the mind, really challenging those. You know, even if it's like, okay, I can't feel that this isn't, going to end but i can know it that is it's going to end i can't feel that this is going to end but i can know that it's going to end because nothing no mental state lasts no no um positive or negative experience lasts so you can just like okay stop the thoughts and you have to look under the thoughts too to see what's there sometimes but if we just if if we start noticing the relationship between our thoughts and feelings we have a better chance of putting the thoughts down and not continually throwing the twigs and dry grass on that fire <laughs> so those narratives need to be challenged and recognized for what they are. And there's a reason for them. And we have to look for that reason and understand it. And and looking at what is not self may or may not be helpful. The Buddha gave lots of practices. We need to come to a full understanding of the nature of reality. But what's the right way to look at reality at this moment that's going to help you do that? So it's good to get a sense of the different practices and the different different uh, doctrine or, or observations really that the buddha had because it gives us different ways of coming in and you know non-self is just one even people it's commonly kind of known that we have different propensities or different things arise in our life um some sometimes we have to look at things more from the perspective of impermanence sometimes more from the perspective of dukkha unsatisfactoriness and at other for, and, and people have a propensity for me impermanence is the one that kept coming up coming up coming up coming up for my Bhikkhuni sister it, it was non-self so we're talking about a a, a teaching of the buddha that is a, is a way in to seeing reality, but it's not the only way in.
1: So work with it and see what you can do with it. And then use the other tools too.
0: Like I said earlier, sometimes we have to increase, turn up the happiness and the joy and the appreciation for ourselves. Um, if If mental states are getting worse, Change what you're doing. Um, If they're getting better, keep going.
1: And what is better and what is worse? Better is more peace and worse is more suffering. Yes, Sarah? Yeah, so one question from the chat. How can you tell the difference
3: between equanimity and being emotionally shut down?
0: Yeah, equanimity. Equanimity is certainly not emotionally shut down. When we're emotionally shut down, we're not happy. Um, equanimity has a real happiness in it. You have access to all the other Brahma Viharas, uh, loving kindness, compassion, joy. Equanimity is there to be the, the ground and, and the wisdom factor of the Brahma Viharas. That's way different than being shut down. So there's an aliveness in equanimity. And it's positive and
1: beautiful and free, so there's a lot of suffering in being shut down. Um, a lot of
0: you know, kind of <laughs> it's funny, it's a denial of self that is going the wrong way. We need to acknowledge this conventional self and the experiences we're going through and see that the super mundane self, is really around clinging and
1: becoming, attaching to things that have no lasting value. Barbara.
5: Thank you. Um, I'm, I've been part of today, I've been caught up in uh, I don't know how much detail to say, but just I've been caught up in um, actually trying to help a friend uh, apply for Medicaid, and mm. that system is very complicated, and I've been kind of frustrated today, very frustrated actually <laughs> by that system, and, and really um, I'm, I'm getting a lot from today because it's just you talking earlier kind of calmed me down and gave mm. me a little distance from the whole situation, and this too shall pass, you know, um, and also the thinking, I, what I'm getting right now is like, I'm right, and they're wrong, or they're wrong, and I'm right, there's, there's very dualistic, and um, again, it's complicated, and it's very, um, it's a bit harsh, it feels mm. like the system is harsh, and so, um, and the person I'm working with feels a bit harsh, and so I'm, it's hard, it's hard to bring that compassion to the situation. And just, yeah. Anyway, so I think this is helping me to do that this afternoon. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I what my question is, or just sharing, or if you have any thoughts, just on what I'm sharing.
0: Yeah, please. My thought is, step back and reorient yourself to be clear that everything you're doing is a gift. Hmm. That you're interacting with the system as a gift. You're interacting with this person as a gift. It has nothing to say about you. Um, It's really just giving of yourself to try to help. And whatever obstacles come, if you're coming from that place and not, not, um, not even in subtle ways wanting to gain anything for yourself. And just when, when it feels sticky, then there's some kind of selfing in there. And then as hmm. soon as that happens, just look at that and then, and, the, and then just, you know, go back to like, this
5: is just an offering. Hmm. Okay. I'm, it's bringing tears to my eyes. Yeah. It's an offering. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: You have six minutes of opportunity,
1: what you going to do with it? Marianne.
3: <laughs> I'm yeah. muted. I'm muted. I was
1: saying I, I, I
3: found my courage uh, to speak. Um, because what you just uh, offered to Barbara is something that has been coming up for me a little bit today is thinking about um, the how um, the practice of dana generosity might um, support this work, because I know for me, the more I've made that central to my practice, the more I feel um, our interdependence, and I can get out of the way um, a little bit more when it's not about me. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's
0: a lovely example of how this works, you know. And the freedom that you feel—really take that in. And you know, when as soon as we like pry our fingers off of something, uh, we feel better. <laughs> and and using using it as you know, Dana is wonderful. I mean, the Buddha put that at the foundational level of the practice. And we tend to get caught up in wanting to just jump to the high stuff, the end, like it's somehow better. And it's not. Dana and Sila and, you know, kindness and compassion, they all go all the way to the end of the path. And what you're giving might change, but the fact that you're just giving goes all the way to the end of the path. And it, it enriches the experience all the way along. So, yes, it's a wonderful way to see. It's a wonder ex- wonderful example within which to see that shift from it being about me to it being about caring
1: and selflessness and Seeing reality as it is, you're never going to regret the Donna. So true. Thank you, Aya. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for bringing that up. <coughs> Excuse me. And i do it. Okay, now it's time to
0: go. I'm going to be posting the study guide for next time. And we'll put the recording of this up as soon as we get it edited. Please write right away if you want your question to be excluded. And I really hope you have a wonderful week. And um, don't beat yourself up, okay? Self or no self.
1: Don't beat it up. All right. Take care, everyone.
2: Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit org slash donate.